Do you need treatment or surgery? There's no need to wait or travel abroad. Receive treatment at Kingsbridge Private Hospital in Belfast or Ballykelly under the Northern Ireland Planned Healthcare Scheme at potentially no cost. Why wait? Text hello to 51777 or visit kingsbridgeprivatehospital.com for further information. Health and fitness with David Hollywood in association with The Hearing Consultancy. Thehearingconsultancy.ie Good evening and welcome to Health and Fitness. It's Cameron Clark here filling in for David Hollywood. Your typically terrific host on a Friday evening is off doing something likely not health or fitness related on a well-deserved break and has left the reins in my arguably capable hands. If you want to get in touch with your health and fitness related messages, you can do so by texting 083 103 or send a voice note. If you want to tell me you miss the soothing lullaby that is David Hollywood's voice, you can do that too. We've got a very interesting show lined up for you this evening. Later, Chloe Farrell learns all about canoe polo. We'll also hear from a two-time speed golf world champion and what is a very unique take on the traditional 18-hole sport. But first up this evening, we're chatting to Paul Tierney, who's taking on the challenge of tackling some of Ireland's highest peaks next week. And it's all in the name of the Ashton Murphy Memorial Fund and the Children's Grief Fund. He's joined me in studio. Paul, good evening. Rehoming, uh, Hi Cameron, thanks for having me. Absolutely, any time. Can you tell me, what is the Ashton Murphy 23 Peak Challenge? So it's, it's a challenge that I devised probably over the last year. Um, after when the, when the charity was set up first, you know, I had in my mind to try and do something to support it, just to, you know, to have something positive. Um, and I'm an outdoors athlete, or whatever you want to call me. Um, so that's you know I'll, I'll spend lots of times in the in the mountains and I wanted to take on a personal challenge so it, those two things kind of conspired to to generate the idea of the tr- twenty three peaks um, with the number twenty three then being very important to Ashling's family and friends that's where that um, idea came from was that I'd go for the twenty three highest peaks in Ireland and then you know driving between them didn't really appeal to me either because. I, t- I like the idea of ha- hopping on a bike and making my own way from make it kind of a really authentic, um, almost like an expedition. And that was the plan was that I'd build it all together into one challenge. And maybe, you know, someone even it could become something. Someone might even follow in my footsteps down the line and do, do, do it themselves. So 23 peaks. Do you know how, how far you're going to be traveling kind of in total? Um, it's about 1,300 kilometres in total, so that kind of works out at about uh, between 11 and 1,200 uh, kilometres on the bike and about 180 kilometres of running. Uh, well, running and hiking. There will be some hiking. <laughs> so quite a bit of distance to um, travel. And what, what's kind of your plan? So obviously you're not going to be able to do this in one day. What's mm-hmm. your plan in between? So say, let's say you do a couple of peaks a day. Yeah. What are you going to do at, at night? Are you going to return home? Do you have somewhere you can stay? So I'm, I have my sleeping kit on the bike. So basically the route takes me over quite a lot of the country. So I'll be starting in Wicklow. I'll be wake, making my way down into Carlow, into Waterford, over to Tipperary, um, down into Kerry with quite a few peaks in Kerry. And then have a long cycle up to Mayo um, and uh, to Mwilray and over to Neffin. And then I'm back into Blue Ball in Offaly. So I am doing like almost like a ring of a lot of the country. Um, fairly straight line if you know what I mean as in a continuous expedition I won't be diverting home or anything so I have a tent on my bike so basically when I finish each day each day could be 10 or 12 hours of if everything goes to plan 10 or 12 hours of continuous going and then the idea is to throw a tent down and get rested so that I'm able to go again the following day You mentioned that you'll be doing 10 or 12 hours of going each day? Each day yeah 
not an easy task. Um, I'm assuming you've you've trained fairly regularly for something like this. Yeah, like I I have I probably have a good level of endurance built up over years of doing kind of endurance races, but um, I've never done anything as long as we'll say ten or eleven days. I probably kind of one or two days is the max that I would have done. Um, so yeah, it is. It's a, it's definitely a new challenge. I'm not sure how my body is going to respond after four, or maybe, you know, three or four days of continuous um, strain. So, um, but at least I know that each night being able to rest and get some recovery in for the following day is allowing a little bit of a reset. So I am expecting that my body will be able to sustain, albeit I'll be tired. But um, yeah, I think I'll be okay. Well, the aim of the challenge, you're not just doing this for your own benefit. You know, you are you are raising for for two very very good causes I would I would say in the Ashton Murphy Memorial Fund and the Children's Grief Fund what kind of sparked the idea behind the challenge itself and why did you pick those two causes well the the link to Ashley Murphy was a very was a very clear link and that's where I wanted that's where this whole um, idea came from um, when I heard about Ashley's um, murder back in January of 22 it, like it, it had a very a deep impact on me and I found out you know almost straight away that um, it turned out I knew Ashley's uncle so uh, um, he would have worked with me in a previous job and I would have you know, held him in very high regard. So um, it was that straight away, uh, and it was something that was expressed by people all around the country, was this desire to do something when you feel kind of helpless that you can't do something. And that just kind of stuck with me. Um, and then when the, when the charity came about, that was my opportunity to do something. And that's where the idea came from. And then the, the idea of the second f- um, charity was to was actually suggested by the the Ashley Murphy Memorial Fund, and I I like the way that the two charities um complement each other. So the Ashley Murphy Memorial Fund, you know, they'll provide opportunities for young people to, you know, to pursue their Irish culture and arts. Um, you know, in terms of music scholarships or providing musical instruments, all those kind of things. Uh, so it's kind of a more cultural and medium to longer term um you know uh, thing versus the children's grief center is more frontline so it's there's a good balance there so they they provide counseling to uh, children that are impacted by um you know bereavement or separation or divorce or any of those things so i, I think they they go together very well typically when someone undertakes a challenge like this they tend to pick say or a nice round number like 10 or 20 mm. peaks you didn't do that you went with 23 what steered you away from the kind of generic 20 it was uh, the number 23 was already starting to carry in through um, some of the kind of uh, fundraising and even some of the tributes that were being paid to Ashling. So some of her uh, her, um, her her GA club mates had already played with number 23 on their back, you know, representing the age that um, Ashling was when she passed away. So she'll, you know, the, her family and friends will say that um, Ashling will always be 23 in, in their eyes. Uh, so that number has a deep significance with them. So it, it was just a no-brainer for me to carry that into the challenge and to go for the 23 peaks. And it was that from the very start, to be honest. Yeah. Is there any peaks of the 23 that you're particularly worried about? You know, we've just come off the wettest July on record. It, mm. the, the forecast is expected to pick up by the yeah. time you take off on Wednesday. But are you concerned about the peaks and then the weather that could affect them? Yeah, I'm definitely concerned about the weather because I have uh, I've been out on all the peaks over the last kind of two months or so and um, I've been on some of the peaks during pretty bad weather and it's not fun and I I don't it's been okay because I've always been probably you know heading towards going home or something I've never been on a peak in bad weather where I know I've eight more days for instance and 
I've got a bag full of wet kit and I don't know how to keep going. Um, some of the peaks are pretty inaccessible. So the ones that you would expect to be difficult are probably for me won't be. So like, for instance, Crown Hill, everybody knows that's probably going to be one of the easiest peaks because it's a well-defined path. Um, it's fairly straight, um, you know, relatively straight up and down. Um, whereas some peaks, they're just difficult to get to. So like there's, uh, or the terrain is, is particularly difficult. Like there's one um, in, one of the, I think it's actually the first peak I visited, Mullachley Vaughan in um, Wicklow. And I, when I was up that the last time, only a few weeks ago, it was, there was horrendous rain, really strong winds. And there's, if you haven't been up mountains in Wicklow, you might be familiar with a thing called peat hags. It's basically like um, boggy depressions in the ground that you have to climb in and out of constantly. So it's not just a case of running or go over um, um, flat ground and those peat hags will disorientate you and turn you left and right. So it's hard to navigate. So that makes, you know, it, it might be a 10 kilometer run, but because you're going over that very difficult terrain, it makes it really hard to cover any ground. Um, or Purple Mountain, for instance, down in Kerry, that there's a lot of um, rocks to scramble over. So. It's, it can be quite different than people will actually, that ha don't, haven't experienced it, will expect that the, the lesser known peaks are probably the hardest. And when you were mapping out your route for these 23 peaks, I know we were talking before the show and you said you kind of put a lot of work into you know, making sure you had everything mapped out the right way. How, how did you kind of, um, how did you adjust to that? So did you, you know, try to separate the tougher peaks that you just mentioned there? Or is it like a, a specific route that kind of makes it easier because you'd be going from one to another? Yeah, it's, it's the second one. It's basically you, you link them up in terms of what's the easiest and uh, to get to on a bike, you know, in terms of trying not having to go on big diversions. So in some cases, I'm going up a peak in a on a on a path that would be kind of non-standard just because it's easier for me to get to that side of the mountain on a bike. So some of them can be a little bit um, tricky to get up and down. But um, the good thing about it is like, I, I, obviously I do a lot of mountain running. And there's a fantastic mountain running community in Ireland. So I've been able to reach out to people in each of the areas and get advice on what's the best route. And people have come out and ran with me to, in terms of building the route as well. So I've had a lot of help. And I think when I'm doing the challenge as well, I'm expecting that I'll have a lot of people coming along with me and running with me. Like I can't accept any help, so they can't give me anything to help me along. I'll have to be self-sufficient, but I will have lots of people supporting me. Can we touch on that bit you just mentioned there right at the end that you can't accept any help from people? Why is that? Um, it's self-imposed. So basically, uh, for a lot of these events, you someone would have a crew and that person would, or that crew would kind of um, deal with any challenges that came their way. So if they got wet, for instance, the crew would hand them dry clothes and take away the wet clothes and bring back, bring them back dry, whatever, that kind of stuff, or would carry their food f um, with them. And I'm not doing it that way. I'm doing it self-supported. So I'm, I'll have to carry everything I need with me or I can go and get it myself. Now, that probably sounds a bit more uh, complicated than it actually is, because in reality, what that means is I can call into a local shop and get a chicken fillet roll. But so it's not as it's not as um, as harsh as it sounds. But it does mean if I'm any of the clothes I wear, I have to be really selective of what I carry with me, um, because obviously I don't want a bike that weighs 50 kilos with lots of bags hanging off it. So, you know, I have to plan what the clothes and how I use them. Um, and I want it to be I don't want it to be too easy either. Um, I'm trying to I want it to be a challenge uh, kind of an unsupported challenge and part of that as well is because um, another reason why I'm doing this event is like I am I'm trying to highlight the fact that I'm able to do this as a man versus uh, say a woman would be could, could be uh, wouldn't mightn't have the freedom to do it because you know of their own safety whatever the case may be 
or they might even be judged for being to be foolish for doing it. And it's kind of it's allowing me to have a bit of empathy in um, not being sure of myself going out doing this. Whereas, you know, on a normal day, if I want to go for a run in the middle of the night in a hill near me, I can just go and run. Whereas women don't have that freedom because they could be afraid of, you know, basically interaction with other people, uh, namely men. So that's the, the other side as well. I'm trying to uh, be empathetic towards not being sure, uh, which, the, you know, a lot of women would have to navigate in their day to day lives. That's a very interesting point. And one, I, you know, when people set out these challenges, usually the challenge itself is the most difficult aspect of it. Mm. You've kind of gone and made this a lot more difficult by not having help for yourself and then having to carry everything. And like you said, putting yourself into that kind of sense of unease, I suppose, to put yourself in the shoes of many women who would face that on a, a day to day basis. Yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, that's just I'm doing that by choice. Um like I don't know, it's a luxury to be able to do that. I, like I'm just I'm aware of my privilege as a man, and I'm just trying to get a bit more empathy towards um, how it feels to not have that kind of confidence about going about your day to day lives, where you know um, you're 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 fully secure in, in what you want to do. Uh, yeah, that's the motivation. You've set up an I donate page online for the fundraiser, which when I last checked, which was only a couple of hours ago, you had raised just under six thousand euro. It's quite a lot of money for two very good causes. It must put, a, I suppose, a bit of a swell in your chest, you know, a bit of pride that you're able to get this money for two great causes. Yeah, it's fantastic. And like, I, there has been a lot of interest. There's people, um, you know, checking in with me all the time. And even over as I'm getting closer to the event, I'm starting to see, you, you're starting to see it swell. The Memorial Fund themselves are starting to get lots of messages and um, of support. And there, there's a great buzz with them as well, which is, you know, that's, um, that's another aim for me is like, if, you know, if I can... If I can bring a bit of happiness and a bit of positivity to, you know, Ashling's family and her friends and the Memorial Fund, like that's a great thing. I think that's another great objective of my own. Um, yeah, so I'm happy with how the fundraising is going and I have that goal of 23,000 euro, but I'm also a competitive guy and I want to absolutely smash that target. So that's I'm going to keep going to, to get as much as I possibly can. Speaking of smashing targets, you, ha- you haven't set out a, an exact timeline of when you want to get this done. And in fact, the, the I Donate page mentions that you want to take this at your own pace and you'd, you'd prefer to use it as an opportunity to connect with people. Mm. And, you know, in, in most cases, when people set out this challenge, it's a case of they want to start, they want to finish and they want to do it quick because there's more of a, I suppose, reward in doing it faster. Why have you gone the other way and decided to go at your own pace? Um, I think I think it's important to engage with people on this because like obviously it's a fundraising event, but it's an opportunity to engage with the community as well. So, yeah, and when I first thought this up, I was thinking of going, you know, my natural instincts are to go try and go as fast as I can. And I was thinking that I would go, you know, basically as fast as I can for a day, throw a tent down in whatever field I'm close to and then go again the following day. But then when I started doing a couple of recce's, it became very clear that that wasn't the best idea because it's actually really hard to find someplace to put a tent. Um, so, so my thought process changed and then even f- through the recce's as well although there, there is going to have to be a balance because even having done um, a number of recce's they just doing it um, as, as, as scheduled now which is across 11 days I'm still going to be out to 10-12 hours a day which leaves me with very little wiggle room so on any given day just to do it what, what I might call slowly is still going to take a fair effort from me in terms of continuously staying going um, and and to hit this the schedule that I've laid out at for eleven days, so yeah, it is going to be a challenge. Um, it's not going to be slow, unfortunately. But yeah. 
And you mentioned doing the, the, I suppose, the reconnaissance on each peak. Have you have you picked out points where you will be able to pitch a tent? Because now, granted, I haven't camped in a tent all that much, maybe four or five times in my life. But every time I have done it, one of the more difficult points was finding a spot where you can place the tent. We don't have to worry about the pegs, you know, getting mm. stuck halfway or snapping. Have yeah. you done much work to figure out, you know, I'm going to get to this point. I know I can put a tent up here. Yeah, I have done a good bit of preparation on that. And I've, I've probably made it a bit easier myself in that. Uh, for most of the places where I'm going to be um, camping, I've made contact in advance and I've asked, you know, can I camp here? Or in some cases I'm staying in campsite. So and I'm af- I've access to a shower. So I'm allowing myself those creature comforts if I <laughs> take it easy on myself. Um, but yeah, and it's because I just doing it the other way. You know, maybe I might do it again in five or ten years time when I get over this one. But doing it the other way it just introduces so many variables that, you know, lots of things can go wrong. Um, it's a it's a very different challenge when you do it like you know to be wild camping we'll say on the side of a mountain that does appeal to me but in terms of doing this for the first time and discovering it I said look let's keep it simple so I'm going to have my campsites or and have a shower and um, maybe even a bit of pub grub <laughs> in the evenings Paul I think, think we've got a bit of an interesting insight in the type of person you are and that you know you're doing this very difficult challenge that the majority of people wouldn't be able to do and you're worried that you're making it too easy on yourself by mm-hmm. allowing yourself to have a shower and potentially having pub grub and maybe a pint after 12 hours of hiking. Yeah, I think the shower is probably more for everybody else's benefit than my own. But yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the plan anyway. So we touched a bit on your, on your background earlier in this discussion, but let's kind of delve into that a little bit. So you've said, that, you know, you've, you've, you've had a background in kind of outdoor adventuring. How far back does that go? Um, I've probably been doing kind of like adventure racing or mountain running um, about 13, 14 years now. Um, I think the first race I ever did was Gale Force West, the adventure race uh, back in, I was it 99 or something like that? Um, no, it would be 99, I've got my years wrong now. But yeah, I think it was, I was about 29 when I did my first um, adventure race, 2930. Um, and ever since then, like I've just, just completely hooked. So I've done, I've kind of moved in and out of adventure racing and cycling as part of that. But what I've always kept doing is the mountain running. And I've done a lot of kind of ultra distance mountain runs. I've traveled around the world doing different races in different countries. Like I've been over to America doing ultra marathons. I've been in La Palma running around volcanoes and that kind of stuff. Um, it's just I think it's a fantastic way to see the world and to challenge yourself and to broaden your horizons. Um, I think it, it's delivered great benefits to me as a person and professionally in terms of building my own resilience, all those kind of things. So it's um, yeah, it's something I'm very passionate about. And in your 12 to 14 years of doing what, what you do, have you encountered a, a challenge quite like this? You know, is this going to be the most difficult thing you've done? Um, yes. In the short, for, short answer, that is yes, it's going to be the most difficult thing. In terms of being out for 11 days, I've never done anything as complex as this. I've, I've ran the Kerryway Ultra. That's a 200 kilometre race and that's a continuous race, which went on. I think I was 30, 30 something hours running continuously for that. Um, so I won't be out for 30 hours continuously but it, because this is you know consecutive days over 11 days it's a different kind of challenge but I would expect it's probably going to be more difficult and certainly in terms of logistics I've never done anything as difficult as this in terms of trying to plan um, you know plan I'd have to have a, a, a race plan we'll say that will get you through 11 days of continuously going um, there's so many variables that can come at you within those 11 days and trying to be prepared for them is, um, is tricky you're not going to be off the grid for these 10 or 11 days. Like you said, you're going to be you're going to be meeting members of the community. You know, you're 
potentially getting a bit of pub grub as well. But you are going to have a live tracker on you as well. What, what was the kind of reasoning behind that? Um, I'm familiar with the live trackers because I've done races where I've worn them before. So I know how good a system it is. Um, it's the guys, the, the company's primal tracking up in Donegal are a, a great good bunch of guys there that are um, very supportive of um, local racing. And, and especially for anyone doing charity events, they'll often provide the, um, the trackers and they're providing them to me free of charge. Um, so I'm hugely grateful for that. Um, so I, I know how good it is because I've been the person watching that dot and it's, it's, it can be addictive, especially if, it's a, if you're watching a race and you're watching two dots. It's, for somebody who hasn't done it, it doesn't sound like the most exciting thing in the world. But if you're seeing somebody closing in and somebody else with a few kilometres left to go and you know that they're, they're spent, you know, they're, they're 150 kilometres into a race, a running race or something, and you know that they're both spent and you're wondering, is that guy going to reach that guy or... Um, so I know I know how good that system is. I know how interesting it is, um, and for safety as well, th- that tracker has an, an emergency button as well. So if I did get into trouble, um, I know I can I, I, I have a route out um, because on some of the recce's, uh, especially the one I did in Wicklow, the weather was uh, bad, and I was and in hindsight I probably shouldn't have been up there. So it does get a bit a bit hairy. If I was to twist an ankle in bad weather, um, you know. Things go things go south very quickly. Now I will have safety equipment with me. Obviously, I'll have a um, survival um, shelter and those kind of things. But still, it's good to have um, an extra layer of safety there. And I suppose there is a a personal benefit to it as well in terms of motivation. You know, if people are watching you and they see that maybe you're you're five kilometers away from your next destination, you were starting to slow down. Mm. Well, they could drop you a simple text. You know, yeah, come on, yeah. come on, Paul, you can do it. A call. You know, th- there there are benefits to little messages of, you know, a, a push when you yeah. get to the end as well. Yeah, 100%. Like, it's great to get those messages. I've, I've, I've done races before where I've, uh, I've gotten messages at key times and they do give you a, a, a boost. And, and even actually just knowing that people are actually watching me and they know if I'm stopped, they know if I'm moving, um, that is going to be a factor. I think it's going to push me on. It's going, probably going to get me up earlier, a bit earlier in the morning as well. <laughs> Paul, unconscious, we're, we're running out of time here, so I'll, I'll finish on one last question. You know, you get started on Wednesday at, I believe, 9 o'clock. How, how are you feeling ahead of it mentally and physically? Uh, physically feeling good. Um, all my training is done. I'm 100% in terms of fitness. Um, no niggles or anything. Uh, mentally, I'm getting there because I've got so much logistics to sort out between now and next um, Tuesday. But uh, racing around, trying to get everything everything sorted. So I'll, I'll be good for Tuesday and I'll be ready for Wednesday morning. Paul Tierney, all the best with the challenge. It's a great cause. Thank you so much for coming in to me this evening and telling me your story. I really hope everyone is able to get behind you as you start. You know, you kick off on Wednesday it'd be great to get an extra push on that on the donation page you know get a, get a bit more money in before you start and then hopefully you can keep kind of ticking in as as you go along if you want to wish Paul at, at, uh, the best you can do that Paul how do people get in touch with you um, the easiest way is probably to get me either on Facebook or Instagram so I'm, I'm easy enough to find if you search for Paul Tierney um, my Instagram um, name is Trail Junkie Ireland and I'm just Paul Tierney on um, on f- Facebook look for a bald guy with a, with, a stu- with a bit of stubble and that'll be me I'm probably standing on a mountain in my Facebook profile pic, I'd imagine. Um, yeah, so they're the two best ways. Or if you go if you go into any of the online, uh, there, I think there's contact details there for me. There's even my phone number and email is probably there as well. So I'm, I'm happy to take contact in any form. Well, it's a challenge I definitely couldn't do. Paul, all the best. 
Next up on health and fitness, have you ever felt traditional golf isn't challenging or exciting enough? Then you might want to consider a career in speed golf. If you're interested, you'd have a chance to get that goal underway at the Irish Speed Golf Open at the Castlebar Golf Club next Saturday and Sunday, the 12th and 13th of August. Rob Hogan is organiser of the event and he's a two-time speed golf champion. He joins me on the line this evening. Rob, what is speed golf? Well, speed golf is like regular golf in that you finish your 18 holes and you get your score. And um, what separates it and shakes it up is that you play as fast as you can and you add your time and minutes to that golf score, which would be your speed golf score. That, that is speed golf. So if, 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 if I'm getting this right, so you, you'll tee off from your, your first hole, you, will you then have to run to your next hole? Yeah, um, if if you're a, if you're able to run and you can make that happen uh, for all eighteen holes, you're going to keep moving the whole way around. And that's that's down to your level of fitness, and it's also very fun because um, you can recruit various tips and tricks to make all that kind of efficient. For example, I use a holster system where I never have to put my bag down, which would be a factor too. So it's a game of golf, it's a game of fitness, and it's also a game that requires some tactics. It's really fascinating stuff for people, you know, I'm jealous of people getting getting in on it for the first time because it opens up a whole new world of, of thinking about the game, and it's, it's really fun. I, I don't suppose you're allowed to use a, a golf cart as you're travelling between, <laughs> between trees. That, that, that's cheating, I imagine, is it? <laughs> Uh, um, you know, in the early days of speed golf, which, which started in San Diego, really, in the late 80s, um, the early rules, there was a caddy in a cart who would hand you your clubs, and that became kind of pandemonium. So at some point in the 90s, the rules became that you carried your own clubs, and it's a very kind of a freeing way to do it. Well, clubs aren't exactly light, you know, particularly if you've got a few of them there, and you're trying to run in between in between holes and then having to obviously take your shot. So from, from the perspective of a, a two-time world champion, how, how do you train for a sport like this? Uh, well, training training for me is I have a background of golf and that's kind of there. And, you know, a lot of the time, the person that does very well at it, we've had Olympic athletes um, in this sport, but sometimes the, the golfer who can hit it straight, even though, we might be carrying around an extra couple of uh, kg around the belly. We can actually make it get it around the course overall faster. For me, I had the back golf background, and it was really about adding a lot of running in there and running here, there, and everywhere. Which is, I know it's a weird one because, you know, from the fitness point of view, running is it's a great feeling, but at the same time, let's face it, you always want to just stop because it's challenging. But look, it, it's something that you can mix. Golf is a passion for a lot of people. And, and when you try speed golf, it's a way of integrating fitness into your into your day. You know, you're, all, you're going to be playing golf anyway. So it's, for me, it changed my life. It was, a, it was really a way to get fit, to get light. And, and, I'm, and I'm loving it. So speed golf sounds very much like a, a sport of 50, 50 and 50. You know, like you said, you need the speed and then you need the accuracy that that comes with with traditional golf to make up your scoreboard so it must be absolutely exhausting you know if you're running from one hole to another and then you have to try and line up your shot while being tired but still doing it quick enough that you're making up decent time without becoming inaccurate at the same time yeah yeah it's amazing the the first time i ever did it i my 
regular shots were even better than they usually would be playing regular golf, which is mind-boggling because it seems like it's such a complex uh, thing, the golf swing, but actually golfers who try it are blown away with how well they hit the ball. I suppose you're not over-analyzing it, you're just letting it happen. And it's amazing what the what the golfer can do in that respect. Now, the putting, whatever it is, it's a very fine skill. The putting takes you want to play a practice round or two because at the start with the high heart rate, as you can imagine, the putting sounding. But it is amazing, you know. Just just like the any other fitness sport, the body adapts, and it's amazing that the body can adapt to this challenge of playing golf at high speed. So. So it it is it's a challenging sport and it's a cool sport but if you just give it a try you'd be surprised at how how you'd be surprised and you know, it could surprise yourself and impress yourself to be fair. What got you into speed golf? So I know you said you had you had a background in traditional golf. Why did did you feel like it wasn't challenging enough? Did you have to step it up a bit? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, trust me, it's plenty challenging. It was something just appealed appealed to me right from the start. I read about it, you know, back going back to 2008. And I was a kind of a madman doing it on his own in Ireland back at that time. In 2012, I, there was a speed golf scene, really got some traction in the States. And um, and I just was lucky the timing was right. And I got to, you know, I got to travel a, a good bit around the world to play in some of these events by hook or by crook. and had a great time, uh, met a lot of, people and buddies all over the world like-minded people and it's great to say a lot of them are coming to castle bar next weekend to take part in the speed golf irish open so for people that are in your shoes like you were back in 2008 and they're they're looking at this sport you know maybe they're a bit bit confused but at the same time very intrigued by what it can bring to them how do they get into a sport like speed golf well we're we're very um we're very open to having new players um, in Castle Bar on the weekend, that would be an ideal chance to try the sport. You know, just to just to let people know, the some of the scores are incredibly impressive. For example, there's a lady coming from New Zealand to play, and she has the Speed Golf World Record, which is level par 72, played in 50 minutes on a, on a full-length golf course. And that is mind-boggling, and that is one angle. That is one story, but... You know, keep in mind the average score at the Irish Open last year would have been 90 golf shots played in just under an hour. So, um, the standard overall is is quite attainable for people. But with all things, with all things, uh, it's kind of at the start. It's about just taking the plunge. And, you know, it might be concerning. Will I, will I shoot a million shots or will I, will I make it around the course? But you know, if you just fortune favors the brave, and I think if you're willing to take the plunge and try something new, uh, there's a whole life of rewards there for us. And also, we're very happy to welcome spectators to the event. And like like last year in Dundrum, I in Tipperary, to anyone that came down to watch was blown away and had a really great experience. So, like a lot of things in life, just jump in and see what happens, Marucci. And like almost any open event in any sport, there is a a, a sort of skill requirement before you can participate, is that the same with the Speed Golf Open next weekend? Yeah, by and large, I'm recommending if you can break 100 in golf and you can complete a 5K in, in let's say, under 30 minutes, something like that, we, we would love to have you. 
Right, so for somebody like myself who can't run a 5k and has only ever swung a golf club once in my life, I'm, I'm maybe not at the level where I, sh- I should be competing just yet. Uh, you you come down, uh, Cameron, and we'll, we'll find we'll find the hole for you to, to have a run on. Come down <laughs> and see what happens, my man. <laughs> right, well, look, for, for the people that are going to be there next weekend, you know, who can they expect to see? You know, what can they expect? Oh, you know, all the speed golf events to have a really unmatched, an amazing just atmosphere and just this feeling of something new and something different. Then in terms of the players, as I mentioned, we've Liz McKinnon coming over from a former European tour player herself coming over from New Zealand to play. Um, We've got players from all over the world, from the USA, New Zealand, Germany, France, England. We've got Luke Willett, the the English player who's going to come over and play in New Zealand having to speed golf all the British Open venues, which is something, you know, that uh, that the regular golf uh, fan might be interested in. So you're going to see some, you're going to see some just incredible performances in terms of golf score and running time that you literally have to see to believe. And then just the overall atmosphere and, and the sheer volume of players. It's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. So run through the details with me for next next Saturday and Sunday. What time are we teeing off at? We're teeing off in Castle Bar at eight a.m. on Saturday and the Sunday. Uh, Castle Bar is in that's in beautiful condition, and we're all just looking forward to getting out there. And it'll run. It kind of happens quick. It'll run for probably a couple of hours. We'll have nearly everybody teed off, and then it's just it's after it. It's just you know sharing stories and there's so much stuff goes on in that two hours you know we love watching golf and i am a golf viewer but i have to say speed golf goes down quick and everything happens and it's just there's, a, there's always a bit of a post-mortem that's, that's after the straight one so come down 8 a.m if you can get if you can get yourself into the area and i promise you you won't be disappointed Rob, just one last question before I let you go. You know, when you're watch when you're watching a golf game, particularly when you're watching it on, on television, you'll see you'll see the signs that go up that ask people to be quiet, particularly when it comes around, you know, tea when the, it comes to putting. In speed golf, does that same rule apply or is it just constant cheers? People are so excited. It's it's total pandemonium. Last last year in Dundrum House, and I'm sure it's going to be again in Castlebar, even more so this year because we're you know, we're we're really getting the word out there about this new sport. It's just people, there's people, there's spectators, there's volunteers, there's players and people are running left, right and centre and because it's a new sport, a lot of the time people are seeing it for the first time and and it just, it's, it's, it's pandemonium and it's mega fun. I'm sure it'll be absolutely outstanding to go and spectate. Rob, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Cameron. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I'm delighted to get the word out. All the best with the event next week. Thanks a million. That was Rob Hogan. He's a two-time speed golf champion and he's the organiser of the Irish Speed Golf Open, which takes place at the Casabar Golf Club next weekend, the 12th and 13th of August. After the break, Chloe Farrell has gone on a search to here around the Midlands to find out exactly what is canoe polo. We'll hear about that. Don't go anywhere. Do you need treatment or surgery? There's no need to wait or travel abroad. Receive treatment at Kingsbridge Private Hospital in Belfast or Ballykelly under the Northern Ireland Planned Healthcare Scheme at potentially no cost. Why wait? Text hello to 5 or visit kingsbridgeprivatehospital.com for further information. 
Fitness with David Hollywoods in association with the Hearing Consultancy. With free hearing test clinics in Clara, Tillamore, Kinnegad, Mullingar Dental Clinic and now at Keen's Care Plus Pharmacy Edendary. Thehearingconsultancy.ie Hello and welcome back to Health and Fitness. In just over 20 minutes, Joe Cooney is going to bring you Country Roads and then at 10, Anne-Marie Kelly is bringing the Roadhouse Cafe. There's an interesting story in The Sun this week. It's headline, exercising for just three seconds a day is enough to build muscle. That's according to new research. Now, the team at Edith Cowan University in Australia last year discovered that doing bicep workouts five days a week for just three seconds made people significantly stronger. Now, their latest work looked at the minimum number of days required to reap the benefits. The study, published in the European Journal of Applied Physiology, found three separate occasions was the, the sweet spot. A total of 26 adults participated in the study. They were all healthy, by the way, and it was carried out over the space of a month. Each did a si- single three-second bicep contraction using their dominant arm, either two days or three days a week. And the study shows that that's similar to slowly lowering a heavy dumbbell from a bent arm to a straight arm. Those who performed the move twice weekly saw no significant changes. Three seconds. Three seconds, three days a week. So a total of nine seconds every week, and you could get some some big biceps. Now, I'm, I'm one who typically will work out for about an hour, an hour and a half. Maybe I need to start investing in this. You know, I'm always complaining that I don't have enough time to work out after work. So maybe, maybe this is on the cards for me. Let me know what your thoughts are. 083 30 10 103. Now, uh, in the last segment, you heard a, you heard from Rob Hogan, who's a two-time speed golf champion. He's also the organiser of the Irish Speed Golf Open, which is taking place in the Castlebar Golf Club next weekend. But... If the last, if the land sport is enough for you, and you want you want to have a look at maybe doing some sport on the open water, you may want to set your eyes on canoe polo. Which, if you're familiar with water polo, it's that, but in a kayak. You know, two teams of five compete head to head. There's a goal. It's about two meters above the waterline. Midlands 103's Chloe Farrell has been speaking to chairperson of the Mullingar Harbour Canoe Polo Group, Ivan McDonald, and he's been explaining why you should consider getting involved. Canoe polo, it's, it, you can imagine, it's kind of like basketball, but played in kayaks on water. So uh, it's a five-a-side sport. So you have five, kayak, five uh, players on each team. And the goal is to get the ball from one end of the pitch to the other and stick it in the net. We think of polo that could be played on horses or just in a pool minus a canoe. How did the combination come about? I guess it's about maybe 80 years ago now, I suppose you can track it back to uh, just people playing with a ball in big canoes on lakes. And it's really probably only in the last 30 or 40 years that it became formalized into, you know, a team sport. Um, so it's, I suppose it's an evolution of people just looking for something different to do, uh, particularly in kind of flat, non-moving water um, with their canoes. So, yeah, it just kind of evolved little by little and... Uh, started out probably as something kind of purely recreational and fun and now a lot of people still just play for recreation and fun uh, but it's also like an international team sport with you know world and european championships and all that kind of stuff so and um, mostly it's evolved probably in the last 30 40 years to that and how long do you have something running in mullingar then so we're just there uh, since 2019 so just over four years um so we started it uh, there in the harbour at, uh, on the Royal Canal, and that's an amazing harbour. It's perfect for canoe polo because uh, it's the exact width you need for a canoe polo pitch of kind of international standard. 
So we started about four years ago, and uh, now we have about 85 members, um, mainly junior uh, young members. Uh, they come along to do a kind of a beginner course for uh, maybe six weeks, and then if they like that, they join the club and they get put on teams, and we train a few times a week and enter competitions. And, uh, yeah, so uh, a lot happened in the last four years, yeah. Just mentioning juniors taking part there, what would be the general age range or who would be involved with the Canoe Polo Club in Mullingar? Yeah, so the vast majority are children aged like uh, between 9 and 18, basically. So we, we deliberately set out to just uh, initially focus on juniors. So it's actually only this year, believe it or not, we've had our first adults who are mainly parents of kids in the club join. So like the vast majority of the, the members are children. Um, and it's a it's a great way to start canoeing for kids. We, if, you know, because unlike say moving water on rivers, which is great too, uh, it's quite easy and safe. And kids fall out of their boats all the time. And in the safety of a kind of a, a big rectangle of water in the harbour, uh, it's very easy to manage the groups. Um, and the other thing about it is it's a team sport, so uh, they're learning more than just how to kayak and play with the ball. They're also learning, you know, how to be part of a team and uh, all that goes with that. So how would a typical training session work then? Uh, ah, okay. So uh, usually a training session would be maybe an hour, hour and a half total. So there might be like 15 minutes of a warm-up. So just on land, uh, we generally might just play some land games with a ball just to get everybody stretched and moving. Um, and then uh, they get in their boats and we might do some kind of drills. So you might do some some uh, kind of training drills that just focus on boat skills. So how to move your kayak in the direction you want to move it to. Um, and uh, then we might do some boat drills as well, or ball drills as well. So kind of passing the ball around because canoe polo is very much the combination of uh, kayaking skills, but it's also very much ball skills. So you need to know how to pass a ball, catch a ball uh, and shoot a goal in the net. So we, we, we might do maybe 50% of the time on water, maybe a half an hour would be, uh, those kind of drills to teach new skills and then the remaining uh, time that's left maybe 45 minutes we would put the kids into teams and we would play matches so a typical match is 20 minutes long so each half is 10 minutes of um, of action and uh, so we would just play games then for the last three quarters of an hour and then everybody gets out tidies up and goes home no that sounds brilliant is it just in terms of kayaking skills and ball skills, is it a fairly mm -hmm. strenuous kind of sport or would it be kind of relaxing? Ah, okay. So uh, so it probably depends on, on the, the level the players are at. So uh, obviously the first day, especially when, you know, young children come down, uh, it, it moves slowly because they're still learning how the very basics of, you know, paddling straight or getting where they want to. So it looks quite slow maybe the first uh, the first year they're playing, uh, but over time it speeds up and it's pretty intense. So it's 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 actually like at the once once they've been playing for a couple of years, it's it's quite fast and uh, it's reasonably physical. So, um, for example, if if you're on the opposite team to me, I can bump into your boat with my bump with my boat to try and get you out of the way. Uh, if you have the ball, I can actually push you over under the water and you have to come back up. So, uh, it's it there's a bit of contact in it as well. Uh, so it's quite physical. We've one of our uh, players, actually two of them, in fact, uh, have played. Uh, have already made the Irish teams, 
and uh, if you go on YouTube or somewhere and you see the kind of high-level play, uh, it's very fast and very intense. So it takes a few years to get there, but um, yeah, it's exciting to watch those games. I love the sounds of that, that there is nearly like bumper cars in the middle of it. <laughs> but just you're mentioning competitions there. So I know that you have been fairly successful recently in competitions you have attended. But just before we get to that, what facilities are around Ireland then for canoe polo? So there's probably um, there's 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 maybe like 10 clubs uh, around Ireland that uh participate in, in canoe polo. Uh, probably the, the, the I'll, I'll probably leave somebody out now, but uh, Kilcock up the road from us and ourselves would be probably the largest ones in the kind of Midlands area. Uh, but there's new clubs, even Derry, for instance, recently just uh, started playing canoe polo. Uh, Tullamore play canoe polo. Um, so Kenny have a, have a long history of canoe polo. Belfast, there's a couple of Dublin clubs. Uh, Galway so it is uh, there's you know there's there's a canoe polo club within reach of everyone somewhere uh, we just got back from Belfast where there's a huge club and a huge facility up there uh, they, they were running a big competition up there so um, there are some clubs like ours that just do canoe polo but uh, more and more now a lot of canoeing clubs that do kind of general river and lake canoeing uh, also have a kind of a, a part of their offering is to do some canoe polo for their members as well so it's it's becoming more and more popular. And can you tell me a bit about the competitions then that you've been involved in recently? Yeah, so we, um, I suppose we, uh, closer to home, uh, we just finished uh, up in Belfast where there was a huge competition with around over 50 teams from all around the world, uh, from Asia, Africa, Europe, uh, and of course Ireland. Um, as part of that, so we had five teams there, ranging from nine-year-olds up to eighteen-year-olds, and uh, it was an amazing experience for them to play all these teams from around the world. So that's probably the most international thing we've been part of. Uh, we started a a, a girls' team uh, about three years ago, and they did amazingly. They came second uh, this year in, in that competition. You know, and they competed and, and uh, played against teams from Africa, as I say, and France and, and Irish and, and uh, British teams. So, um, so that was great. But you know, obviously, uh, the, the main thing is we're getting everybody out there and they're having a bit of crack. And every now and then we win something. Uh, earlier in the year, we were in Liverpool. Uh, we brought a couple of teams there, and we brought four teams to Lithuania earlier in the year as well. So, um, it's one of those sports that actually, for the kids who really enjoy it. Uh, there's an opportunity to kind of travel and go to some of these competitions and uh, have fun. Uh, but closer to home, then, we have run a few competitions here ourselves. Uh, we ran a junior competition in, I think it was May. And for the last three years, we have run the kind of national senior uh, club championships, which is kind of the main competition in Ireland. Uh, and we've run that in the harbour there, which is very exciting. People come along and they see that and they go, ooh, that looks fast, because uh, that's polo played at the kind of highest level. Um, so it it is a competitive sport. Uh, not everybody wants to compete. So we, we, we have some players who just come, they play, they do a bit of training, they play for the crack. Uh, but most of them enjoy the competitions. It's a great way to uh, meet new people as well. Um, our, our kids recently, have, uh, we have kind of club gear. And uh, in Belfast, uh, a lot of them traded their club gear for club gear from other uh, players from around the world. So they, they've made huge friends around the world now through the sport. 
Um, so even after the long finish playing, hopefully they, they, they still take something from it beyond just the game, you know. That's amazing to hear that, you know, local teams are doing so well on a worldwide level, not even just a national level. And the fact that they can be so friendly with other people they're competing against, that's yeah. amazing to hear. And I suppose just to finish it off then, how did you get involved with Canoe Polo? What's your background to it? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I'm a latecomer to it. Uh, so my kids, I have four kids who all played uh, Canoe Polo. And uh, they all played in Kikok, in fact, in the, in the club there, which would be one of the, the bigger clubs. And we just, just uh, before COVID kind of kicked off, we got the idea I grew up in Mullingar, and so my parents still live in Mullingar. And for some reason, we got it into our head: oh, we'll run a we'll run a couple of polo events in the harbour in Mullingar. And then it just kind of snowballed. Local kids started showing up, and before we knew it, uh, we'd kind of uh, led ourselves into starting a club without realising it. So yeah, mainly through through my own kids, uh, I play, but I'm not very good. So uh, I generally stick to just the organising side of it. And that was Ivan McDonald speaking to Midlands 103's Chloe Farrell about canoe polo and why you should consider getting involved. Very interesting concept there. Tune in to Midlands 103 this bank holiday Monday from 8 to 8 for another 80s and 90s music marathon. Pete Casey kicks things off at 8. Mark Hughes takes over at 11. Tony Christie is with you from 2 to 4. And then Sarah Casserly focuses on one hit wonders until 6 with Shane Barkey wrapping things up from 6 to 8 with the biggest hits from those deadly decades. Then at 8 we're going back to the Harriers again with part 2. The bands brought to you by the Bridge Centre in Tullamore and presented by John Cusack and Mick Lynch. They'll have fantastic music and memories from Offley's favourite late night venue. The lads will be talking to some of the bands that performed there too. And all this is followed at 10 by something a little bit different as Rory Hafford brings us a two-hour jazz special. Bank Holiday Monday on Midlands 103 is brought to you by Barry Martin Motors Mullingar, now celebrating three years in business. See barrymartinmotors.ie. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this evening on Health and Fitness on Midlands 103. Thank you so much for listening. David is off gallivanting again next week. So I'll be back on your radios from 7 o'clock next Friday on Midlands 103. Joe Cooney is up next. He'll be taking you on a trip on those old country roads. That's after we head to the Midlands 103 News Centre. Don't go anywhere. Health and Fitness with David Hollywood in association with the Hearing Consultancy. Passionate about hearing and hearing health, we use the latest technologies to identify and analyse hearing issues and provide their solutions. Book a free test on thehearingconsultancy.ie. Midlands 103